Good afternoon and welcome to the 95th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today I talk about indigenous communities and COVID-19 in Chile with Manuel Taroni and Sarah Kelly. You can catch COVID Calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also watch COVID Calls on Facebook Live and on Periscope. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please do help spread the word. Send suggestions for future guests and future topics. And please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, July 31st, 2020, there are 17,406,644 confirmed cases of COVID-19 globally, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. That's up from 17,126,081 cases Yesterday, of those, 4,541,016 are reported in the United States. That's up from 4,472,963 yesterday. There are now a total of 152,922 deaths reported in the United States. That's up from 151,570 reported yesterday, another day with a more than 1,000 death increase. In Chile, as of today, 355,667 cases have been reported and 9,457 deaths. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for COVID-19 sufferers every day. I'd like to continue that now. The headline is, U.S. inmate with coronavirus dies weeks after giving birth on a ventilator. This was written by Lois Beckett, published in The Guardian, April 29th. A pregnant Native American woman incarcerated in a federal prison in Texas was diagnosed with coronavirus and died in federal custody in April, officials said. Andrea Circle Bear, 30, had been sentenced to more than two years in prison on a drug charge in January. She delivered her baby by cesarean section while on a ventilator in a Texas hospital on April 1st and died there on April 28th. Circle Bear's child survived, but officials declined to provide any additional information on the baby's condition or where the child is now, out of respect for the family and for privacy reasons, a Bureau of Prisons spokesman said. The 30-year-old woman had a pre-existing medical condition that made her more at risk for a severe case of coronavirus, coronavirus, according to federal officials who did not specify what the condition was. Andrea should never have been in jail in the first place, period, the Democratic Congresswoman Ayanna Presley said during a discussion hosted by The Appeal, a criminal justice news site. The fact she was there at all is cruel and negligent, Presley said, calling Circle Bear one of many people trapped inside prison system because of systemic inequities and a failed war on drugs. This January, Circle Bear, who was already five months pregnant, according to court documents, was sentenced to 26 months in federal prison. Her sentencing documents note that Circle Bear had a history of substance abuse and recommended her as a candidate for a prison substance abuse treatment program. The documents also recommended that she be placed in a prison medical facility, given that she was pregnant and due to deliver her child in early May. 
the Department of Justice touted Circle Bear's sentencing in a January press release, quote, don't let yourself or your property get mixed up in the world of illegal drugs. It ends badly, unquote, the U.S. attorney Ron Parsons said in a statement. Circle Bear was the 29th federal inmate to die in the Bureau of Prisons' custody since late March. As of late April, more than 1,700 federal inmates had tested positive for COVID-19. About 400 of those had recovered at that time. On March 20th, Circle Bear had been transferred from a local jail in South Dakota to FMC Carswell, a federal prison medical facility in Fort Worth, Texas, officials said. The prison medical facility was more than 1,000 miles away from Circle Bear's home of Eagle Butte, South Dakota, which is part of the Cheyenne River Sioux Indian Reservation. As a new inmate in the federal prison system, Circle Bear was quarantined as part of the Bureau of Prisons' plan to slow the spread of the coronavirus, according to a press release from the Bureau. Eight days after she arrived, she was taken to a local hospital for potential concerns regarding her pregnancy, but was discharged from the hospital the same day and brought back to the prison. Officials said three days later, prison medical staff members decided she should be brought back to the hospital after she developed a fever, dry cough, and other symptoms, according to the Bureau of Prisons. Circle Bear was put on a ventilator the same day she arrived at the hospital and her baby was born the next day, officials said. She tested positive for COVID-19 days later. Circle Bear's pregnancy made her high risk for the virus, but she would not be considered priority for release under the Bureau of Prisons and Justice Department guidelines on releasing prisoners to home confinement to help stop the spread. She was already on a ventilator when an expanded home confinement memo was handed down by the Justice Department in early April. Hey, I'd like to turn to our conversation for today and introduce my guests. Sarah Kelly is a cultural geographer and postdoctoral researcher affiliated with SIGADAN, the Research Center for Integrated Disaster Risk Management, and Dartmouth College. Her work addresses water, climate change, and disaster studies through community-based participatory research and mapmaking, principally with Mapuche Wiliche communities in southern Chile. Manuel Taroni, my second guest, is an associate professor at the Sociology Department at the Catholic University of Chile, where he convenes the critical studies on the Anthropocene Research Group. He is principal investigator at SIGADEN, the Research Center for Integrated Disaster Risk Management, and the 2020-2021 Global Advisor of the Institute for Culture and Society at Western Sydney University. Sarah and Manuel, welcome to COVID Calls. Hi, Scott. Thanks for having us. Um, I'd like to start the way I've been doing all of these uh, discussions, which is to just find out where you're calling from and what the COVID-19 situation is there. And depending on where I'm calling and what the day of the week is these days, it's really volatile. So I'm interested to hear what it's looking like um, where you are. Sarah, could you start, please? Sure. Um, So I'm, I'm based in southern Chile just near Valdivia in La Región, in the region of the Rios, the Rivers region. And uh, here the COVID situation is not um, nearly as uh, press- pressing as the Lagos region further south or um, Santiago. So there's uh, just over 900 cases in the region and it's it's a more rural spread out region. So um, 
in terms of exposure to the virus, it's there's not as many issues, but um, other issues related to um, economic hardship, uh, it is it is a region where people are, are highly concerned in dealing with with poverty, and so um, other aspects of the disaster are affecting it. Are there any kind of preventive measures there, uh, shelter guidance or mask guidance or things like that? Uh, there's some mass guidance um, in terms of cities and public areas. They're required. And um, there's been some opening of restaurants recently of 25% have been opened um, in the last couple of weeks. And we're still seeing how that's going and what that means. Um, and uh, that beyond that, it depends on the municipality, how it's being handled. Manuel, can I ask you the same question where you're calling in from and how's the pandemic looking there? I'm calling from Santiago, Chile's capital. Um, and I, I apologize in advance because my connection here is so poor that I, I might, I'm not sure it's gonna hold for the entire conversation. Um, here things are quite um, ugly in many in many in many ways. Uh, cases are around ten. ten uh, we have uh, we have um, and that number hasn't really um, uh, diminished. Uh, um, so we, we have high rates of contagion and high rates of cases. And, and, and I think what is worst is that we. We, 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 we don't know uh, for sure uh, about uh, the numbers. Uh, there are so many conflicts and so many doubts about um, cases, uh, about the metrics utilized by the government, that, um, that, th that there are a lot of suspicion uh, around um, counts and counting. And, and as um, uh, Sarah was saying, we probably the, one of the most uh, complicated things is all the uh, hardship that families, especially vulnerable families, are going through these days. Uh, hunger, like directly, right? Like uh, people is doesn't have food, uh, so it's a very very. Um, kind of extreme situation for many families and many communities here in Santiago. Let me follow up with you, Manuel, on, on um, just get a sense of in Santiago, you're facing some of the things we are in the United States in terms of lack of testing. Are, are there ample supplies to do the testing? In the United States, we're still, there's a big story in, the, in Vanity Fair that came out today that really underlined the complete debacle of not having mm -hmm. testing available as, as, as a federal, not just as an incompetence, but literally as a strategy that they didn't have the testing ready. Do you have a similar situation in, in Chile in terms of testing and contact tracing? Yes, ab absolutely. Um, I'm not sure if it is an explicit ta tactic but it, but it has uh, revealed kind of this infrastructural uh, precarity of of the health system. Um, so the, the the whole architecture 
the data architecture of the health system, uh, the infrastructural uh, capacities uh, of local uh, health uh, um, of hospitals and local health uh, services so poor, is so precarious. It is kind of it's visible all those uh, uh, vulnerabilities of the system. So uh, um, the government gathering data, but but the data gets gets lost. And they have had cases kind of like you know like almost uh, funny cases of uh, you know like tragic comical cases of uh, of uh, tests that are that that are that are that has been found in the streets. Um, so all these all these situations that uh, basically reveal um, historical and accumulative uh, precarities of the entire health and governmental system at large. Sarah, let me turn to you. I want to find out a little bit of of your background. Um, what you what were the steps that got you into this research? What are the core questions that um, you know still? get your synapses firing. How do you find yourself in this work? Sure. Um, so I've come to work with CIHIDEN and as a disaster risk management research center um, through first researching water and climate change. And I've always been a community-based participatory research which, uh, researcher, which means that I conduct research um, in concert with community members um, where they do help define the research questions and we make sure that the research process serves their local needs. So it can look different each research project, but that's a general methodology that I work with. And I've been working in Southern Chile with Mapuche Uiche uh, ancestral leaders and communities over the last six years. Um, first around hydropower development and conflicts in Mapuche Uiche territory, um, understanding the impacts in both socio-cultural and ecological terms of these small hydropower projects being developed, but also the conflicts and how indigenous rights uh, were being articulated and recognized or not in certain conflicts in particular. And from that, I've um, expanded my research to look at um, different climate change issues and related to seasonal drought and access to water and looking at the different ways vulnerability is experienced and related to water. And so with the, um, always through um, one of the main methods I've used is participatory map making. So during this pandemic, I've worked to use those tools to develop um, another project. And I'm working right now with re, um, partners, Mapu Express, which is an, an independent autonomous media collective in Mapuche territory. And we've started a map that's interactive. And so the project's called Mapeando el Coronavirus en el Mapu, which is mapping the coronavirus in el Mapu, which is the historical name for Mapuche territory. Um, and so... We're just launching that project and seeing how this map works. And basically, my colleagues and I, as part of Manuel's um, research line that he guides at Sihiden on the cultures of disaster, um, myself and Valentino Carano, we've, we've launched this. And basically, there are six icons, um, the main icon being territorial control, which we're going to talk about today and which our essay talks about, and then mm -hmm. five other icons related to different strategies and needs in Mapuche territory, including such icons as um, 
uh, I'm translating from Spanish to English in my head, but um, uh, political violence, um, extractivism advances, like points where there's extractive industry activity, but also strategies such as trafficking tomb, which is the exchange of food and goods, um, cultural patrimony and relation to health and other icons. So that's the the main project I'm doing right now. Um, and I don't know how Manuel's um, audio is now, if he if he's also present with us to add in anything. Um, we have lost him at the moment from screen, okay. but I think he's probably scrambling to try to, to try to get okay. back. So we'll connect with him. Okay. Um, so let's stay, but there's, um, uh, as far as the map, that project, is that, is it already up online in a format that it's people can online. see and access or? Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I'll, um, I can send you the link to that, Scott. If you can put the link in the private chat, I'll put that sure. up so people can okay. see it. Yeah, I know yeah. we, have a, we have a lot of people who listen to COVID calls who are, who are really interested in that methodology. And last yeah. week we had a great um, session with Jared Thorpe and Yanni Lukisis, and they do this map room project in the United States and they're starting a COVID-19 mapping project. Um, and we did, we did that in the session. We actually had people mapping while, while we were doing the session last week. So that Excellent. was, I think there'll be a lot of interest if you can. Yeah, it was fun. Thanks. Let me, let me follow up and ask something. I think for people who, may not be as familiar. Um, when you say participatory research, mm -hmm. um, what does that mean to you? Like what are the real defining features of participatory research in 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 the way you employ it? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean I think as I as I indicated earlier, I think that participatory depends on the community that you're working with and their needs, their availability, and, and how the research project um, develops. But in, for, my need, for my experience and the way I've addressed it, basically, I look to find community partners who already have um, interest in the same research questions that I have interest in. And, and from that, um, I try and have each step of the research process be participatory, which means like that they help define the parameters, the um, either the questions or the or the intellectual intellectual aspect of that research, and and where they'd like that research to go, and what are the limits of that research. So those are kind of mm -hmm. that's kind of the practical, and I and I believe in it being not just posing the research questions or collecting the data, but I also really try and have the analysis be collaborative. And that doesn't mean, obviously I, I do the majority of the, of, the, of the work in analysis, but trying to bring text back, edit text together and making sure that particularly areas that are um, about cultural knowledge, um, that those be checked and um, edited and given input according to the research protocol that I'm working with with partners. I was speaking now, with Alexa would, Dietrich yesterday. Yeah, yeah go ahead. Okay. Sorry. Oh, no, no. I was going to say, I think for myself, as well as a lot of other researchers, what participatory means now that we're moving into this online sphere is um, it's an mm. interesting and, and ethically important question that um, I'm figuring out and, and learning about as I go. But bringing that same research ethics to the online sphere and seeing how that works is, is a challenge that I'm undertaking along with many the, others, I imagine. The, I, that's been a theme we've talked about, but just to, to go a little further with that, so with the ethical dimension for remote research, is that because it's harder, um, 
maybe some community, there's a digital divide issue, or is it about actually sort of trust building and the problem of building trust at a distance, as opposed to maybe building trust in other sorts of ways, being invited into a community and sharing, um, you know, history and, and building some basis of understanding before starting the research. What are the new ethical um, challenges that you might be facing? Well, I, I, I guess I'll just go to a con the concretes of example of what I'm doing now. So um, in my earlier research, um, doing participatory map making with Mapuchiwichi leaders on hydropower conflicts, um, one of the main aspects we, we looked, we worked with with maps was that, you know, Mapuche geography is different than Chilean geography. It's oriented east-west. It's not nor oriented north-south. And as they worked to create maps to demonstrate how they understood um, rivers and water in their cosmovision and why they were against this type of hydropower project, um, they decided not to map specific sites of cultural significance because of the possibility that they could be used in other ways or made vulnerable to um, by being made made visible on a map. So these were not made visible on a map. And so that was um, an easier process to carry out because we continue meeting in person and, and in our research protocol, they decided that. Now, in an online sphere where communities are uploading this information, that is a different um, process. And so in this case, we made the tool and Mapo Express is leading the use of the tool, implementing it, carrying out outreach. And so it's not, I don't have the same relationship to this research that I would in another case. But with Mapo Express, we're talking about basically the, the way they're going to handle it is every week they're going to go through what's been um, uploaded. And if they have any ethical issues, they're going to communicate why they didn't upload something and make those ethical ethical rules that they create as they go on their website. So I signaled that I'd come across this in my research in the past and Mapo Express decided that's how they're going to handle it in a way that's transparent and um, in line with how they operate as an organization. The um, thank you for explaining that in such detail. I think it's 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 um, hard enough when we're not remote, and and all of these adaptations that you're making in real time are really important for the research community to hear about and others who are interested in how social scientists work. I was speaking with Alexa Dietrich yesterday of the SSRC, who you know because she's involved with the um, series. She's my co-curator in the series for this disaster studies series, and. She was really talking about, um, you know, we were talking about this issue of ethics and she said, you know, we, she feels we're at a time where we, we really need to be honest that there are some questions that we can't ask, or I guess there's always questions we can ask, but there's some studies we just may not be able to do if we embrace the kind of ethical commitment to participatory work yeah. that you're describing. And we were talking about this give and take on balance I think most of us would agree so much more is gained because then the research that's produced is so much, um, first of all, so much more relevant to a broader base of people, but it's just more, it's just ethically more sound. It's something you can stand on and be more proud of and be sure that it actually represents something that is not just one person's, you know, one person's take on what's going on in a community over a short period of time. But the trade-off, as you pointed out, is that there may be some data you just don't get. Hmm. Some questions just don't get asked. 
that may be confounding to some people who don't think who think about data collection as just you go collect data, you get it, you go back to your campus and you figure out what it means. Yeah, I mean, I think it's I think ethics are incredibly important. And I think particularly, I mean, I don't working with the Mapuche Huiche population in particular, who I've worked with for a number of years, um, they've, you know, it's working with them has always been underneath a research protocol that's very clear. And so for me, the ethics are clear. Um, and in terms of how to move online, I knew that I identified Mapu Express and proposed pro- propose the project to them, knowing that they have relationships of trust throughout Mapuche territory and are a well-recognized organization for managing this type of information. And so I think that um, as researchers making partnerships with um, organizations and, and supporting our research questions with their missions in ways that can be mutually beneficial is, is one way to handle these challenges in, in an ethically responsible way. I want to remind people that you're listening to COVID Calls, and today we're talking about indigenous communities in Chile and COVID-19 with Sarah Kelly and with Manuel Taroni. Manuel has experienced a technical difficulty, so we will either get him back into this conversation um, or we'll do another session with him because I know people are interested. Um, it was almost too greedy to have you both in one session, frankly. So if we bring him back for another one, then that's that's perfectly fine. I want to read, you published an essay in the SSRC's Disaster Studies Group. And I'm just going to read a, a brief um, a brief bit from that to bring us into some of the work you're doing there. You say in the essay, um, and you're talking about territorial control and some of the um, sort of political issues that have been raised in Chile under conditions of COVID-19. Right. And you say in the essay, this is the lesson of territorial control, to find more careful ways of managing crisis and to help repair somehow centuries of settler aggression. The disaster risk reduction system has to establish a meaningful dialogue with indigenous collectives, recognizing that indigenous people have complex and holistic understandings of disasters in their territories. It's a it's a complicated story and an ambitious analysis. And I wonder if you could talk to us about some of the fundamentals that we need to understand um, as we think about what's really going on there. So can you tell us, like, what is territorial control? What does that mean right now in this COVID-19 context? Yeah, um, sure, I'm happy to. And I should just say, for those listening, you know, Manuel is the first author on this, and I came on to support him. Um, but I would love for to hear him explain this article, and he really works with the politics of care. So I'll do my best to explain what I can and not try and sure, explain sure. what I can't. Right. Um, but basically, um, you know, we were in touch and following what's happening in Chile, uh, territorial control as, um, it has a certain history in Mapuche territory related to, um, the, the forestry plantations created and, um, the, the movement to both, um, retake land and that was historically taken away from the Mapuche people, but also to protest the advent of forestry plantations that um, affect um, 
sovereignty, water access, um, land access throughout um, southern Chile, but particularly in the Araucanía region, which is the region north of where I am. Um, however, what we started to see, so while it has this particular history, what we started to see throughout mm-hmm. Chile were um, in Mapuche territory, but also among another of a n- number of other indigenous peoples in Chile that they were raising um, territorial control points. And so these were sanitary barriers um, largely being being created to um, stop the flow of people. In many cases, it was related to, in Chile, there's a lot of people that have second homes or summer homes or summer cabins. So many territories, territories it was related to stopping people um, coming to their second homes, particularly from Santiago, um, where there was a higher number of infected people. But it also became... Um, I would say each case is different. Each case um, expresses a different set of political concerns and actions. Um, but what we drew out in that in in our paper and what we saw is that in, in these cases were related to their acts of sovereignty. And while each is different, uh, we heard and that articulated. We saw that articulated in in practice as well. That um, territories were taking control of health needs, caring for their populations in different ways handling the uh, distribution of food, of medicine, and um, it's a phenomenon that continues to be ongoing throughout Chile. So as disaster scholars, we were watching this happening and seeing that, um, in particular outside of Santiago, that there was um, a phenomenon that that was teaching us about um, the lacking areas um, in how the Chilean state is addressing disasters. And so without trying to um, interpret this whole phenomenon, we tried to understand what are the lessons for disaster risk reduction, since we were already doing that research and we saw um, other critiques being raised in this moment that were important, we thought, to highlight. So you talk in the piece about disaster risk reduction um, as a sort of coherent entity um, and, uh, you know, some folks may not be as familiar with that, that language um, and the DRR, the acronym that's often just used for it, is a shorthand for people who follow sort of international humanitarian aid and disaster and what goes on at the UN level and the Hyogo framework. There are a lot of different international and national um, right. consortia, governmental and non-governmental, that traffic in this world of disaster risk reduction. It sounds not only innocuous, but absolutely helpful, um, but you're placing it in a uniquely, an important critical context here. Can you say mm-hmm. a little bit about how you use disaster risk reduction and what it means in this context? Sure. Um, again, I don't want to, I don't want to speak for Manuel, so I'll just say how I understand it. Um, basically, mm-hmm. um, it's, it's related to the policy of how to manage uh, disaster risks, right? And in that, in general, is related to we have natural hazards and the impact they have on different physical and cultural geographies, different different places, um, and so that that's kind of the the broad idea. But um, where I've been working, there was, you know, Chile is a, a country with a lot of natural hazards. And so there's a long history, and I'll just talk about the area where I research in Mapuche-Wiche territory. There was a major earthquake in 1960 um, throughout southern Chile, and that led to a complete change of of the way of life. So whereas people historically used wampo, which are a type of canoe, 
to move through the lake to river system. During that 1960 earthquake, the the lake was so filled with trees that people actually and and roads were starting to come in that people actually completely left using wampos. So this major earthquake earthquake disaster led to a change in um, the culture and the mm. way of life in that area. And in more recent disasters, disasters um, such as a major volcanic eruption, that's part of the cosmovision and and spiritual beliefs that, that the volcanoes would erupt. And it's part of the, the greater balance. So whereas the Chilean state forces people to evacuate, the Mapuche people higher up in the watershed where I work absolutely do not want to be evacuated when there's, when there's a volcano. So there's this context of, of disasters and how the state views and defines disasters and how Mapuche communities have lived disasters and what, what are risks in one sphere are not necessarily risks in the other sphere, right? And so that's a little bit of background and a much longer history to, yeah. to contextualize in in the pandemia. Um, what are in what ways are people vulnerable in Mapuche territory and in southern Chile? And and how can that be better uh, managed for local needs? And what I, what we saw was these points of territorial control and the different um, spokespeople coming out and explaining what they're doing. They were really worried about um, what we might see as smaller risks, but but that were very important to their to their people and their communities. For example, um, older people need to go and take out their monthly um, pension, and instead of needing to go to the nearby city to get that, they were asking that that money be brought to them, so they didn't have to travel weekly or monthly to go and get that. Um, that medicines, instead of people needing to go to the nearby city to get those medicines, that those be brought to them. Um, so certain changes in how people move through space um, so that they're less exposed. And they're worrying much more about the elders in their communities than we saw in Chilean news or in how the Chilean approach was handling disasters. So that's kind of one major example that we saw. Um, another more recent example that I think is very pressing in Chile um, from what I hear is that uh, students are worried about being able to maintain their schooling, especially students at in institutes or colleges, because they're worried that they're going to be able to maintain their scholarships with um, the online system and with scholarships not coming in in time. So that's another point or responsibility that these mm -hmm. points of territorial control are starting to worry about and organize for. So there are risks that might not even be on the sphere of the Chilean state, but that are very important mm -hmm. to um, Mapuche people and, and people in rural Chile in general. It's bringing in this historical dimension is really, mm -hmm. is really powerful, I think. And you talk in yeah. the essay, um, I mean, you sketch out a historical timeline. As a historian, I get very excited when I see disaster research that explicitly engages a really long timeline and a complicated right. one. Um, so when you use terms like settler colonialism or empire, um, what I understand from that is, it, it, to bring it back to some of the points you were just making, that there's, from the Mapuche perspective, being asked to evacuate it is not understood as a as something exactly in this moment, it it brings forward history, a long history of of evacuation and removal. But on the other hand, the arrival of people from outside with medicine or with help 
with disaster risk reduction also bears with it this long history of invasion. Um, I know I'm simplifying here, but that's a really powerful framework to bring to that. And I guess my question to this is, the people that you've talked to, do they speak about it in that term, in those terms? I mean, do they invoke previous episodes that they can point to and say, this was an epidemic in the past and, and this is how it impacted our community when we interacted with the Chilean state or, or it's not so, it's not so clear cut and it's expressed more just in terms of their practices. I would say, I mean, so the, the heart of my work before, coming explicitly to disaster studies was around um, hydropower uh, conflicts. And what I could say, since I've done a lot more interviews, what I can say based on that data and and those experiences conducting ethnographic research for two years and um, over 70 interviews, semi-structured interviews in the territory is that most people connected, Mapuche people connected hydropower development today to a history of colonialism that did not begin with the Chilean state, but began with the arrival of the Spanish crown. Um, and in general, um, there's, you know, all of these different state agencies that lead to different projects being developed in Mapuche territory. And people don't distinguish one from the other in, in, in the sense of they're all seen as being brought from outside and imposing one way of organizing and doing territory upon the Mapuche way of, of organizing and, and connecting to their land and viewing and understanding water and other elements of nature that we might separate, right? And so uh, in that sense, disaster state disaster management is one more state program that at, that is part of that history and is part of that imposition. And that's why when we're using the term settler colonialism, we're we're connecting it to what we've observed and learned in territories. I want to remind people you're listening to COVID Calls and we're talking about indigenous communities in Chile and the pandemic. And you can get your questions in, just put them into the YouTube live chat or you can uh, put them up on Twitter. Just be sure to tag at U.S. of disaster. So just to stay with this a little bit more, if the if territorial control, the way you've sketched it out, it's still, it, this is still vulnerable people. Um, if, if, and they're still having to deal with the epidemic um, there. So what kind of tensions, what kind of stresses does that place? Um, once territorial control is sort of enacted, how do people mm-hmm. then cope? Are there still are there organizations from the outside who are welcomed in by invitation, or is this a moment of um, improvisation and creation of more um, self-sustaining kind of you know, health clinics or um, epidemiology? How is that? How is that working? Um, that's a big question, Scott. I mean, so one kind of give two pieces of this because I think that's that's a major question. That I don't have a full full answer to to at this moment. I'd say one part of this, of the, the mapping project that we're doing right now, um, and we don't have the, the data yet, but Mapu Express is working with the first line of health responders throughout Mapuche territory to fill in the, the, the map, the interactive map that we're creating um, and, and connect what they're observing with, um, with 
territorial dynamics and these and these like are they seeing that um people what types of mapuche medicine are being used what types of strategies are they finding are they working and so i don't know the answer to that but mapo express in in this project that we're supporting at sihiden they're doing that that research right now and so um, maybe when Manuel comes back in a in a, a few weeks, he can share that with with you all. Um, so that'd be kind of my directories. And then, basically, I came to I've been thinking as a researcher, rethinking how I understand vulnerability. When I was um, I was on Isla Wapi, which is a an island in the middle of Lake Ronco in the Rios region, when the coronavirus um, took kind of became a much more a bigger phenomenon and I was thinking about vulnerability to climate change and we're doing this study combining scientific knowledge and ancestral knowledge to understand um, water quality contamination and and what that means and 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 so I was thinking about vulnerability in terms of water scarcity but on this island that is mainly subsistence agriculture, all Mapuche um, owned land, I saw that they were very resistant and resilient in other ways, right? And that became, I already knew that, but looking at it through this lens of the pandemia, it really shifted my understanding of what's vulnerability and what's resilience. And so basically, I learned it's a lot more complex than I was thinking about beforehand. I think a lot of other people are, are dealing with that too. And, and so it's something I'm thinking I'm learning about more right now. Uh, and I think a lot of other people are kind of rethinking the relationships between vulnerability and resilience. Uh, I know that the, a lot of the communities that I work with are focusing much more on, uh, subsistence agriculture and, uh, diversifying what they're growing and expanding what they're growing. Um, I think that, that, Ecotourism is very big in southern Chile, and so um, indigenous and non-indigenous people are very vulnerable in the sense of if there's a summer uh, tourism or not. If there's not summer tourism throughout southern Chile, that can be really catastrophic for many people. And so um, I think we're all watching to see how how this economic vulnerability, socioeconomic vulnerability um, plays out. Uh, the Oyes Comunes, which are like common um, common pots, is what in it's like a it's like a, a practice of community meals. Those are happening throughout Chile and a lot of people are depending on them to to feed themselves right now. And mm. so um, the issues of poverty and hunger throughout Chile are 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 very pressing right now. So um, I think that's important to to explain contextually. So the economic distress that's being um, mm-hmm. you know created in 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 this moment of territorial control is being felt overwhelmingly in those communities as well. Then I mean they're this they're caught in a bind. Then yeah yes and you know I I visited um, some of the communities I researched with a few weeks ago and. A number of people expressed that since they own land and have animals, that a lot of them are fine right now, but they worry about the prolonged effects of of this pandemic. If you know, if and when it expands to a year, a year and a half, that that could become a lot more catastrophic for many more people. Um, and I think 
what I observe and read, and, and it seems that the cities are have been more rapidly affected in terms of economic distress. Um, I was thinking about this in terms of what I've been able to read about what's happening um, with the Rapa Nui in Easter mm -hmm. Island, which um, again, they're sort of caught in this bind. You know, there's been a long-standing struggle over um, local control, territorial control there. Um, and yet their economy has evolved to be almost entirely um, reliant on visitors, you know, those planes landing every day and, and having a set number of visitors who get off and, and spend money. But they've been, um, I think, I don't know, I haven't seen the situation in the last couple of weeks, but they, they closed that part of their economy down in March. And it's absolutely, mm -hmm. so at one and the same time, they're exerting um, a form of self-preservation and control that's necessary, I think, for their autonomy. But at the same time, they're cutting off their economic lifeline. I don't know. I don't see how it's sustainable. Or it brings forward, I guess, and this is part of your essay. We have to rethink these concepts of sustainability. If, if your local economy is only sustainable because um, Europeans and North Americans arrive by plane once a week to spend money and leave, then maybe that's not ultimately a sustainable economy. That seems to be part of the, the issue that's raised there in in Easter Island. I don't know if, if that's resonating in other areas um, of Chile. I, th I think so. And I think that uh, in terms of how we confront climate change and pandemics, that we have a lot to learn from many different indigenous peoples. And um, all I can say is I'm listening now and trying to listen and, and follow these discussions and see what solutions are being proposed. I wanted to come back to one of the th uh, themes that um, we're seeing covered a lot. So I read the obituary today um, mm -hmm. of a Native American woman in, in the U.S. Who, who was extradited and put in, imprisoned in, um, on drug charges in Texas, and she was from South Dakota. And you probably have seen in the news here, um, you know, this issue of tribal uh, governments closing down the highways. Mm -hmm. And there have been some standoffs and some very tense, very tense moments along those lines. Um, I don't know um, if it's something you can comment on, but think with a little bit in terms of comparables here that we may be seeing between the communities that you work with and study there in Chile and what maybe happening with indigenous communities in North America? Are there, are there um, points to be raised of comparison that can be illuminated? I'm, I'm hesitant to compare, um, but I have been, I've been watching um, what's happening in the U S and, um, you know, learning about what's happening with the Navajo nation and the level of, um, infected people relative to the population uh, was definitely um, shocking and important to um, that it's reaching the news. Um, but I'm hesitant to compare. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. One of the things that, that was raised in that article and in others that, um, that I've read uh, really talks about um, elders and the importance of elders um, yeah. for a variety of variety of um, governance functions, memorial functions, um, just 
many things that we um, should be attentive to. And, you know, it's one of the things in the United States. I don't know if this is playing like out like this in Chile, but the, um, the abandonment um, of mm-hmm. our elders in the United States so the non-indigenous population, the astronomical right. rates of infection and death in, in elder care mm-hmm. facilities is something right. that we're going to be grappling with for an awful long time. And Absolutely. I had guests on from Italy who were talking about the disappearance of a whole generation of elders who spoke, who the people who could still talk about the post-World War II years and what it meant to cope and survive mm-hmm. in those times and to have them all die within two yeah. to three weeks. Can you help us understand a little bit the the way the social structure works in the communities that you work with in terms of age and particularly around elders and that how that may be relevant to the kinds of uh, territorial control issues that are raised? Uh, sure. Um, so I'll just repeat. Um, I've been working with Mapuche Uiche and uh, communities and ancestral leaders for the last six years around uh, water issues. And in that research, um, Lonko are spiritual political leaders of communities of of Lof, which are the basic units of the territory. And um, Lonko are typically men, but not always. And uh, they're typically, um, they can be very young, but in my case, I've worked with one of the uh, one elder Lonko, who's one of the most Lonko Pangi left, is one of the most um, respected, well-known uh, Lonko in in a larger territory. Um, and in general, um, elders are seen to be people who um, have a lot of kimun, which is um, uh, wisdom, and um, to be really valued and and listened to. And um, but so. That's uh, you can definitely see that 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 aspect of the society guiding mm-hmm. how um, risks and vulnerability have been uh, handled in in the in this period of the the pandemic in Chile, and you know it's, it was interesting um, visiting some of my research collaborators recently and just learning how they'd kind of changed their whole systems of buying food and, and getting goods. Mm -hmm. And they've actually in some ways potentially made these systems that have them traveling less on four hour bus rides to buy basic goods in the rural areas. And so, um, you know, it has been interesting to see kind of the, the ways that it's not as taxing for older people now to get their basic needs because, um, think living in rural areas but needing to interface with modern society has been difficult for a lot of elderly people in Chile. Um, for those who don't know Chile, it is a very centralized country. So um, Santiago, the capital, is where the majority of the population is and where a lot of the decisions are made. And the rest of rural Chile is um, large parts of it are very um, sparsely populated. And so how um, those vulnerable populations get access to resources such as healthcare, other needs, um, or, or jobs, um, is, is a major issue. And it's not seen as much in public policy because policy is generally more urban, um, centric. I, I wanted to just something you were talking about earlier about your, 
you know, how you ended up doing work there and your, your, some of your earlier work about water and, and climate change. Um, I had the opportunity to also be um, resident only for a short period of time at Sigaden in, in the summer of 2018, the winter of 2018. And um, what one of the things that really struck me profoundly was a country that had such a wide variability of scarcity of water and too much water. I mean, I can, I've never been in a place that had such a wide variability of that and that and then to map that onto the political economy of the country is really fascinating studying indigenous populations in that context is not something i did explicitly but i did find myself in the in the north in the in inca de oro in the atacama region and Mm -hmm. you know places that receive globally um on average less rainfall than anywhere else in the world and yet they've been having these tremendous storms and flash floods and so the mining sector the indigenous um, you know, some of these territorial control issues. And then I hadn't really thought of it until we were having this conversation that, and that's a whole other side of the country, but these things have all snapped together around water. And yeah, you've obviously absolutely. had this insight many years ago, so I'm not explaining your uh, work to you, but I, could you draw uh, out a little bit more how your, how your thinking may be changing on this? Well, I guess I'd, I'd say that, that one point where water comes together um, and my colleague uh, Patricio Melianca in Mapo Express brought this out when we um, we just had some press releases for launching this mapping project um, but it, I also came across this in my research on hydropower is that um, you know this is southern Chile is a very biodiverse area I can explain this in my scientific terms but the Lowen which is plant medicine there's an incredible variety of plant medicine um, and there's, you know, Mapuche knowledge around plant medicine is diverse and profound and um, it's an integral part of their culture. And so where there is more, what I would say, more potent plant medicine is where there are water sources that are that have specific spiritual as well as what me in a Western world might say certain biophysical um, characteristics, too. But, you know clean water, living water in these places of water springs or waterfalls. And so these places are where the plant medicines sought sought to um, treat more serious health issues. And these are the same areas that are targeted by various types of extractive or natural resource-based industries, such as hydropower, forestry, aquaculture. And so these you see these these intersections of health needs sovereignty of territory and cultural resources like plants and extractive industry and so it, with the map that that we've been working on but just in general you see that these things aren't separate in practice and that one is exacerbated by the other and so mm-hmm. i think it's really important to um as disaster researchers to really try and understand the complexity of, 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 of the pandemia and how it intersects with the issues we were already researching, right? And um, it's, it's pressing. Absolutely. I, I want to let people know, we just have a couple of minutes left. You could still get a question in um, if you want to for our, co- our COVID calls discussion with Sarah Kelly today. Uh, about indigenous communities in Chile and the pandemic. I think we'd be remiss um, if we didn't just say a, a bit about uh, SIGIDEN, the Research Center for Integrated Disaster 
risk management. Would you mind, um, and I can chime in too, because I was yes, briefly part well. of that community. Um, <laughs> yeah. But uh, what an, to me, what an astounding community of researchers. Yeah. What a unique approach. Can you say a little bit about how you found them or they found you and what your work has been like integrating with them? Sure. Um, so yeah, Sihiden has six different lines of research and it's an independent research center. It's located on the Catholic University campus, but it's um, an independent research center funded by um, Fundap and Anit, but it's funded by Chilean institutions as a center of excellence and it involves researchers as well as other practitioners from um, different disciplines. And so there's it runs a gamut, really. There's um, volcanologists and people working on tsunami modeling. And then there's people like me and Manuel in social scientists working on his line is called the cultures of disaster. Uh, I'll say that in short um, and working on disasters more from different qualitative and quantitative perspectives in the social scientists, sciences, including sociology, geography, anthropology, among others. And so um, there's a lot of collaborative work being done in Sihiden. And I'd say that one of its strengths across the institution, but particularly in Linea Cuatro, line four, which I'm part of, is that um, we're doing really innovative, participatory, collaborative, creative work to understand disasters, both um, in contemporary terms, but also the legacies of disasters. For example, um, role of memory in areas of Santiago where there's been flooding historically and how that leads to how communities are being recreated and built today, um, among other projects. So, yeah, it's it's a it's a it's a really neat center to be part of, and, and you know as well, based on your time, you know, that there's there's some great people that are part of the center. Absolutely, and what you're describing, even just these multiple lines of research, I think most people this is what we should be, I think, aspiring to um, yeah. for disaster research centers around the world, which is that, and I want to give a shout out to Rodrigo Sinfuegos, the director, mm -hmm. who was so kind when I was there, and and. You know, as a as a historian, um, I will say it's not that we're often uh, we are treated as sort of a hothouse flower. It's it, people are not unhappy if you're there at a disaster research center, but in ones that are often so focused on engineering, um, mm. to have such a, a crucial space in the research design for humanities and social sciences. I can only mm. think of a handful of places in the world that actually do that and really do it. Oh, interesting. Um, and oh. it's a constant challenge, obviously, but um, that was really impressive to me in my, in my time there in, in Sigiden. Um, and just to, you know, Manuel is not here to say it, but I, I guess um, I should say it was because of his kindness that I was able to go there and undertake some of this, this research that I, that I did there at that time. So we will be sure to have him back on and he can say a little Good. bit more about, uh, about what it means to, to be there at, at Sigiden in, in longstanding. So um, I guess we're up on time. I just got a last little question for you. Um, you're going to give the link for this mapping project so we can share that yeah. out with people. And how are you keeping your stamina in this time? I mean, this is a disaster with an uncertain, this is a slow disaster with a, an uncertain middle, I would say, I'm not even going to talk about the end. Um, how are you keeping pace right now? 
<laughs> I have a um I have a nine-month-old child, Kian, and he is. Okay. I'm keep I'm keeping up with him, crawling every day, <laughs> and you know, just living life and um, knowing that we're all going through what I would say is a collective trauma and also um, different challenges in terms of being able to see our families. Or um, and many people are going through much more hardships than that, right? So I just try and uh, be grateful for what I have in my family and um, support those around me as, as I can, you know, and also know, I think when this moment's over, nothing's going to go back to how it was, but I think many of us are also going to say, Oh, wow. A year felt like three years, but it's also um, the months are passing quickly. So I think it's just important sometimes to take a breath and put it in perspective and, um, you know, appreciate what we have around us. Um, and I know that's a privileged thing to be able to say in this time. So I recognize that as well. Privilege, but still important to, to say that. Yep. And thanks for sharing. That. Um, and I want to remind people, you can check out uh, Sarah and Manuel's essay in the Social Science Research Council Disaster Studies series. And the essay is Care and Sovereignty, Territorial Control and the Decolonization of Disaster Risk Reduction. It's a really, really great essay and should be, will be required reading, I think, for many people who are looking to understand disaster studies, not as just a story of how countries do it or how emergency managers do it, but these layers of history and, um, and particularly indigenous identity and how they play in. So, um, you've been listening to COVID calls. You can catch COVID calls every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time on Monday. We're talking to Kate Starbird about disinformation and the pandemic. And we'll be talking about the election, which is not so far away. Uh, Sarah, thanks again for your time today. Scott, thank you so much for inviting us. I really enjoyed speaking with you. Stay healthy, everyone. We'll see you soon.